great wealth, great kids, great influence, a great life. You know, Job had it all, and in a flash, he had nothing, not even his health. What are we to make of his unspeakable loss? And how does wrestling with Job help us navigate our own losses? Well, get ready to do some wrestling with Job coming up. We call this program The Land and the Book. It's hosted by a guy with more than head knowledge about Israel. Charlie Dyer has a heart connection as well. I'm John Geiger, and you know, Charlie, many people are asking, where do we look for hope these days? I mean, in this turbulent world, many people find themselves adrift in a sea of hopelessness and just utter despair. What comfort do we have then as believers? Well, you know, John, Scripture makes it clear that our hope is in the future that God has planned for us and the world. If you need an extra dose of hope these days, and frankly, who doesn't, we encourage you to tune into Life in Messiah's third annual prophecy conference, Uncovering the Messages of the Minor Prophets. You'll hear from world-class teachers like Dr. Michael Rodelnik, Dr. Tim Sigler, and others about this major topic from the Minor Prophets. We're certain that learning about God's plan for the church, Israel, and the world will encourage you and motivate you to be involved in what He is doing. Now, to sign up for this free live streaming event, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. Be sure to sign up today. The conference begins September 30. All right, let's dig into our look at current events from the Middle East. Story number one, listeners who have followed events in the Middle East over the past few years realize that issues are pretty complex, more interconnected than meets the eye. So help us understand several seemingly unconnected incidents that involve Russia, Israel, Iran, and Syria that have all unfolded over just the last two weeks. Yeah, John, these events at first do seem random. Uh, Russia recently withdrew an S-300 anti-aircraft missile system out of Syria that it had given to the Syrians five years ago. And Israel attacked a warehouse in Syria that apparently held over a thousand medium-range missiles. Now, that's two separate events, less than a week apart. But here's the apparent connection. Russia gave the S-300 system to Syria as a warning to Israel following an Israeli attack in Syria back in 2018. Syria launched an anti-aircraft missile at the Israeli jets, but instead they hit a Russian military jet, killing 15 crew members. Now, even though Russia gave the system to Syria, Russia still kept the system under full Russian control and only fired it against Israeli jets one time, apparently as a warning to Israel. By mid-August, Russia chose to redeploy the system back to Russia. Apparently, they need the system back to bolster their defenses in their war with Ukraine. The system had been deployed in Syria at Masiyaf, uh, which is near where Syria has a scientific studies and research center. Apparently, Iran was using the S-300 system as a protective umbrella and had set up a medium-range ballistic missile production facility and ammunition dump at the site. It looks like Russia dismantled their system and loaded it onto a cargo ship by August 19. By August 24, the ship was already in the Black Sea heading for redeployment. Israel paid close attention to the movement and decided to act before Iran was able to move their missiles to other locations. On August 25, Israel attacked the assembly and storage facility, apparently destroying over a thousand missiles. Now, here's some of the key points connecting all these events. Russia taking back the S-300 system suggests they're stripping equipment from less strategic locations to bolster their defenses against Ukraine. They did leave systems in place in Syria that guard their air and naval bases, but not the ones protecting Syrian or Iranian assets. 
A second key point is the up-to-the-minute intelligence Israel maintains on what's happening in Syria. Less than a week after Russia dismantled the system, Israel launched their attack. They knew what to strike and when to do so. And a third point is this could also push Iran to try to fill the vacuum now being left by Russia. They've developed their own anti-aircraft systems, and should the nuclear agreement be passed and provide them with a financial windfall, watch for Iran to try and install their own systems in Syria in place of Russia's. Each country is playing a complex game of chess, and that's why it's important to watch to see how all these different moves interconnect. Fascinating. Look at those stories. Well, Israel has passed the midpoint in the campaign leading up to the November 1 elections. Normally, election polls begin to firm up and become more accurate at this point. So I have to ask, is a clearer picture of the election coming into focus, or is it still clouded? What are you seeing? Well, you know, at first glance, it does seem as if the different parties and their supporters are firming up. Uh, The most recent poll shows Netanyahu's Likud party and their likely coalition partners capturing 59 seats in the Knesset, two less than the number needed to form a majority government. However, those same polls show Lapid's Yesha Tid party and their likely coalition partners only capturing 55 seats. The remaining six belong to the Arab joint list, which has never joined any coalition in the past. Now, all this suggests another struggle to form a working government, but there are a few signs suggesting the polls might not be as accurate as past ones at this point in the election cycle. One issue is the growing polarization of the electorate. The right-wing religious Zionism and Otsma Yehudit parties have agreed to run as a joint list, and the polls show them going from six seats in the last election to as many as 12 seats in the upcoming election. Uh, Basically, the electorate in Israel is moving further to the right over time. Now, part of that movement is at the expense of the Zionist Spirit Party, uh, the old Yamina Party of Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Uh, They're now expected to drop below the threshold needed to have any members in the Knesset, though, in fact, their party is saying, don't count us out yet. Uh, They believe that they're going to regain those seats. Uh, The far-left Moretz Party chief called the Arab joint list, uh, the ones who've never been part of a government, a legitimate partner for a ruling party. Now, that could place Moretz too far to the left for other parties in the current government, and uh, they may be unwilling to join with them in a coalition. Another poll predicts an all-time low Arab turnout in the election. That could cause Arab representation in the Knesset to dwindle, and the parties picking up the additional seats could very well be those on the right. So watch for all the parties now to begin focusing on a get-out-the-vote campaign to try and get as many of their supporters as possible to the polls on Election Day. Uh, The election does have the potential of shaking up the political deadlock that's gripped Israel's government for the past several years. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. We're looking at current event stories based in the Middle East. Just over a week ago, Libya experienced several days of extreme violence in the capital. What caused this recent flare-up, and is the country moving closer to elections, or are we moving toward a renewed civil war? Yeah, 32 people were killed, hundreds injured, in what's been called the most serious fighting there in years. Now, it was caused when the rival prime minister chosen by the legislature, tried to force his way into the Libyan capital of Tripoli and take control of the government from the interim prime minister and his UN-backed government of national unity. Well, eventually the rival prime minister was unsuccessful and he was forced out of the capital. But during the clash, both sides engaged in indiscriminate shelling in civilian populated areas and six hospitals were hit. Now, the concern right now is the country could return to full-blown war following nearly nine months of this political standoff. The only way out of the crisis is to hold national elections. 
The head of the National Elections Committee announced the end of force majeure, a technical term describing extraordinary circumstances that he says forced Libya to cancel last December's elections. Seemingly, that would open the way for new elections to be held. However, Libya's attorney general says he has information on 3,800 forged ballots from the last election, suggesting they were the result of foreign interference. Well, Libya needs free and fair elections, but it's hard to imagine either side trusting the other right now. And until that happens, Libya remains a powder keg that could again explode at any time. Well, a life-saving breakthrough to repair a defective aortic aneurysm has been developed by scientists and doctors in amazing Israel. Tell us about this new procedure and the doctor who performed the surgery. Yeah, this is a fascinating story. Aneurysms are bulges in blood vessels caused by a weakness in the vessel wall that can then cause the vessel to rupture. And an aneurysm in the aortic arch is especially dangerous. Up till now, the main way to repair that kind of an aneurysm involved high-risk open-heart surgery with potentially serious complications. But an Israeli company called Endospan developed an aortic stent graft system called Nexus that's threaded to the heart and it covers the aneurysm so it doesn't need to be removed. In clinical trials in Europe and New Zealand, several hundred patients underwent the procedure and it's already received certification in Europe. Uh, The first procedure in Israel using this device was performed by an interventional cardiologist named Gabby Elbaz-Greener. And here's the second part of the story. 29 years ago, she was a 20-year-old student riding on a bus to Hebrew University when a terrorist on the bus set off an explosive device. The blast damaged her carotid artery. She almost died, but doctors were able to save her life. Hmm. And she decided to switch majors and become a doctor herself. And she's now performing this new life-saving procedure on others. For about 80% of those diagnosed with an aortic aneurysm, this new procedure could mean less risk and a far more rapid recovery. And one of those helping perfect the procedure is a doctor who got into medicine because of the life-saving skills of other doctors there in Amazing Israel. And that's a look at current events from the region. Listen, a full program today, including a conversation with Pastor Bill Kynes, the idea of wrestling with Job. Everybody's going through something. Some of us, though, are going through very deep waters. If that's you, you don't want to miss this next segment. And then Charlie returns with answers to your Bible questions and a devotional later on, all part of this one-hour flyover of the Middle East that we call The Land and the Book. Stay with us. Great wealth, great kids, great influence, a great life. Job had it all, and in a flash, he had nothing, not even his health. What are we to make of his unspeakable loss? How does wrestling with Job help us navigate our own losses? This is The Land and the Book, and I'm John Geiger, promising a really encouraging conversation coming up. Right now, though, here's a quick thought on loving our Jewish co-workers and relatives and friends. I think we need a drum roll for this next conversation. A drum roll as I ask this audacious, crazy question. What is the fastest way to turn off my Jewish friend to Yeshua? I'm asking that question of Cynthia Stroll, who along with her husband, Dan Stroll, are part of Olive Tree Congregation in the suburbs of Chicago. What do you think? What's the fastest way to turn off my Jewish friend to Yeshua? I think that coming to a Jewish person with a superior attitude, And it could be for a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person, but to have an attitude of, I've got all the answers and you need them, Mm. is so off-putting at the least. 
we don't want to communicate a message of condemnation. We want to communicate a message of grace and love and that God's love for them is real and that he is a holy God and he has certain standards, but he wants us to know him. Yeah. And there's a tension there because the truth of the matter is not from ourselves, but from God himself. We have this gift. We have been given this insight that is capital T truth. And yet we can't be obnoxious or arrogant about our presentation of that truth. Right. And I think uh, one of the roadblocks that maybe Jewish people bring to the considering this is their presumption that we are arrogant, know-it-alls, intolerant, uh-huh. um, judgmental. And in Jesus' name, Christians have done pretty heinous things to Jewish people for generations. A lot to think about there in a conversation we've had with Cynthia Stroll, who serves with her husband Dan at Olive Tree Congregation in Chicago. Always appreciate your dropping by, Cynthia. Thanks, John. Dr. Bill Kynes has been the senior pastor at Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church in Annandale, Virginia, since 1986. He's a senior teaching fellow with the C.S. Lewis Institute. His books include A Christology of Solidarity, Jesus as the Representative of His People in Matthew, and Seven Pressing Questions, Addressing Critical Issues, Confronting Christian Faith. He's joined us today to talk about wrestling with Job, his newest release, and I'm looking forward to the conversation, Bill, so thanks for connecting today with The Land and the Book. Uh, It's good to be with you, John. Let me start with the obvious. Job is an ancient story. So why this new book of yours? Uh, Well, this book really uh, flowed out of my preaching at the church and also my collaboration with my son. My son did a Ph.D. on the book of Job in University of Cambridge, so it was uh, a collaboration between us. And why Job? Because it's part of Scripture. It's encouraging to us. It shows an example of persevering faith that we all need in the face of suffering. So why is it necessary that we wrestle with Job? Why not just read Job? Well, I think uh, the book invites us to enter into the experience of Job himself, and I think the length of the book is part of that. Uh, Dealing with suffering is not an easy thing. It's one of the most challenging things to our faith. And in that process, we see Job wrestling with God, and I think the book gives us encouragement uh, to engage in that kind of wrestling ourselves. And I have a question here that that, uh, might be a little off-roading. Why is the biblical book of Job so long? I mean, when I read the story of Job, all 42 chapters, and I I admit to being part ADD, my reaction is, Couldn't we have pretty well covered this story in, say, 10 chapters? I mean, no disrespect, but surely there's a reason or reasons that escape me. So help me understand. I think that's a good question, but I think the very literary structure of the book is part of its message, that dealing with suffering in our lives takes time. Uh, We don't instantly switch to rejoicing in all that God gives us. Sometimes it's hard, and uh, Job is a process. There's a journey. And I think the length of the book invites us to enter into that journey ourselves. We tend to emphasize the tangibles of Job's story, his losses, his suffering, his unwavering faith, uh, his modeling for us what godly suffering really looks like. But is it possible that we undervalue the message in this book that spiritual warfare is happening around us all the time? How do you weigh in? Oh, I think that's a good insight into Job, because I think Job never knows what was going on in the heavenly councils. He never knows the big story that we as readers know. 
And I think that reflects the fact that Job's faithfulness in the midst of suffering ultimately brought glory to God. And I think we can take that to heart. We were involved in a cosmic struggle to remain faithful to God. And when we remain faithful, he is glorified, even though we don't know the whole story. So I think that's a great encouragement to us to recognize that there are things going on in the, in the heavenlies that we're not aware of, but our lives make a difference. Our lives bring honor to God as we're faithful to him. Dr. Bill Kynes, along with his son, has written the book, Wrestling with Job. Bill is senior pastor at Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church in Annandale, Virginia. Let me ask, how likely is it that there are other Job encounters happening even today? How probable is it that our adversary stands before God and demands access to test Bob or Betty Christian today? Uh, Yes. You know, and I think that sometimes we think suffering is a result of our sin, and it can be. But Job says, no, not necessarily. And in Job's case, it is a result of his righteousness. And, and that's, a, that's a challenging thought. Um, God uses suffering. In fact, we, we think of suffering not just as affliction, but as a trial. And Job's suffering is a trial. And I think God sometimes brings suffering into our lives as a trial to test our faith, to strengthen our faith, to deepen our faith, and refine it. And not only are we ultimately edified, but God is glorified through it. So I think Job is one of the ways that helps us to deal with suffering in the world. And the reality is we will all suffer in one way or another. In this fallen world, we will encounter suffering and trial. Okay, the book's title, Wrestling with Job. What does it look like practically for somebody who who picks up your book uh, or who reads the book of Job to wrestle What do you mean wrestle? How do we do this thing called wrestling? I think the key is being honest. We see the initial response of Job when he says, uh, naked I came into the world and naked I will depart. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a wonderful response. But then the suffering that he experiences sets in. And then he begins this, why God? Where are you, God? What's going on here, God? And the book of Job draws us into that struggle, which people experience. And I think as I preach this in our church, people thank me for, in a sense, giving them freedom to wrestle with those hard thoughts that they have, the challenges of what's God doing here? So I think wrestling with Job is a matter of wrestling with God and not letting go, not letting go, taking those questions, those challenges to God and not letting go until he gives us a blessing, just as Jacob did in Genesis 32 when he wrestled with the angel. One of the aspects of Job's story that confuses me is that Job, uh, in my view, does seem to complain. He does seem to confront God. In, In the last chapter of the book, he even tells God, quote, I repent. Yet there is no record of condemnation from God in the passage. In fact, in 42 verse 8, we read of God's displeasure with Eliphaz, and his other two friends, you have not spoken of me what is trustworthy as my servant Job has. How can we account for this? Well, I think the, the verse you refer to where it says in the English translations that I repent, uh, Job 42.6, I think that translation is influenced by people's discomfort with the way that Job speaks to God. I think, and we argue in the book, and, and others uh, are doing the same these days, that really that shouldn't be translated, I repent, 
as much as I am comforted. That's the way that verb is translated in the other places it's found in the book of Job. It's commonly translated that way. And if you translate it that way, it resolves what's going on in the book. Job enters into this grief. He's on the ash heap. He shaves his head. He, he is entering into this ritual of grief, and he refuses to be comforted until God comforts him. And when God appears to him, when God speaks to him, he is comforted at that point. Mm -hmm. He turns away from his grief and is able to re-enter into normal human life. The friends come to comfort him, but they are unable to do it. They're unable to bring him out of his grief, and only God can do it. So I think understanding 42.6 as not repent. No, he, he never sins. God never accuses him of sin, never mm -hmm. absolves him of sin. He is uh, honest with God, and God commends his faithfulness uh, to the end. Okay, another point of confusion for me, and here I risk sounding disrespectful toward the Almighty. Ready for this? You know, I don't know if sure. I was at your church, Bill, maybe you'd kick me out. In the opening chapter of the book, we're told that Job's seven sons and three daughters are all killed. In the closing chapter, we're told he has given seven more sons and three daughters, and they are the most beautiful in all the land. Okay, that's wonderful, but it still doesn't erase the pain or the memories of those children he lost. Uh, these aren't commodities. These aren't, you know, souvenirs. These are, these are people. So what is a biblical way to process Job's loss? Well, in one respect, if you don't feel some of that, you haven't understood the book of Job. I think the, the, the author of the book wants us to feel exactly that way. How is this possible? How could a good God allow such a thing to happen? Uh, that's, that's the essence of the challenge of the book. We, in the end, have to be like Job and understand that God has ways that we do not understand. He is God, and I am not. He is still good. And he can care for creation, as he describes it in his divine speeches at the end. If he can even control the evil forces represented by behemoth and Leviathan, then he can be trusted. It's similar to what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount when he points to the fact that God cares for the lilies of the field, the birds of the air. How much more will he care for us? Mm. So ultimately, those very questions have to be given to God, and we have to somehow find comfort in the fact that God is great and God is good, and that's what Job does in the end. What does Job's story tell us about processing the loss of our loved ones? What insights from Job can we hang on to, or should we be hanging on to much more tightly than we do, things we've overlooked, perhaps, about loss? Well, I think that, again, the book of Job allows us the honesty to be truthful with God. And the importance in our relationship with God, that it is the true me <laughs> relating to the true God and not simply parroting pious phrases, but really getting honest and saying, God, I don't know what's going on here. God, what are you doing? God, I hate this that I'm going through. Please, God. Uh, so there's a place for real lament in the struggles we face in this fallen world, but it's a lament that keeps coming back to God and perseveres with God and saying, God, be true to, I know who you are and your character. Be true to that and show that to me. And that's the wrestling that takes place. That's what Job demonstrates for us, and that's something I think we all need. Bill Kynes has written Wrestling with Job and joins us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and I confess, Bill, that um, 
I deal with something akin to survivor's guilt, or at least a cousin to survivor's guilt. I look at people who are undergoing tremendous suffering, tremendous loss, tremendous hurt, you know, disaster after disaster. And by contrast, you know, my life is Disneyland, and, and I sort of feel guilty. Uh, speak to me about that very issue. I can relate to what you're saying. I think compared to, especially uh, doing some of the research on this book and hearing the stories of people with chronic pain and yes. tragic circumstances, uh, I feel as though I've, I've had an easy life. I do, as a pastor, share in some of those experiences vicariously as I enter into people's lives. But I think you can't quantify suffering. Mm. My suffering, though it may be minor in comparison, is still real to me. We're all going to suffer to yes. some extent, and what may appear objectively as minor suffering can be experienced as major suffering in a person's life. So I think that's part of it. And then part of it is just we need encouragement in our faith to understand how big God is. And uh, that's one of the great messages of the book in the divine speeches at the end. He is bigger than we can understand. In fact, a God that we could fully understand would not be worthy of our worship. And I think that's important for us to remember. Well, you make some great points, and I encourage listeners to check out the book Wrestling with Job. We've got a link to that at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. A final word from you, Bill, on suffering and wrestling with Job. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share this. I think it was an encouraging experience for our congregation to go through this journey of the book of Job and to learn a little bit more about the challenge of faith and understanding that God is worthy of our worship regardless of our circumstances. And that's a great way to land this conversation. Thank you, Bill. Coming up next on The Land and the Book, Charlie's answers to your questions. Keep it right here. Thanks for being our friends. Thanks for sticking with us here at The Land and the Book. I think you're going to be glad you did. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, has his Bible open at the ready, and he's got a stack of questions on the other side of his desk, and maybe one of those questions is yours. We're looking forward to getting through as many of them today as we can. Uh, Charlie, first, though, where do you look for hope? Uh, in today's turbulent world, Many people find themselves kind of adrift in a sea of hopelessness and despair. So what comfort do we have as believers? You know, John, Scripture makes it clear. Our hope is the future that God has planned for us and the world. Now, if a listener needs an extra dose of hope these days, you know, frankly, and who doesn't, uh, we encourage you to tune in to Life in Messiah's third annual prophecy conference, Uncovering the Messages of the Minor Prophets. You'll hear from world-class teachers like Michael Rodelnik, Tim Sigler, and others about this major topic from the Minor Prophets. We're certain that learning about God's plan for the future and Israel, church, and the world will encourage you and motivate you to be involved in what He is doing. To sign up for this free live streaming event, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. And be sure to sign up today. The conference begins September 30. All right, that stack you've got there, Charlie, is a tall one. We're going to dig in right now, starting with Nancy and Steve's question. They say, we're making a list of prophecies fulfilled in the Messiah. Daniel's 77s is the next challenge to find, if possible, the exact dates from Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem 
as the Messiah. That's Palm Sunday. So the question is, when is Nisan? Yeah, and I had a professor in seminary. His name was Harold Honer. He did an incredible job on this topic. In fact, uh, what he shared with us in class, you can now find in a book he wrote called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's definitely a worth reading. Now, here's a brief summary of, of what Dr. Honer was teaching. He said, the decree that starts the period, the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, matches the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, found in Nehemiah chapter 2. And that happened, he says, on March 5, 444 B.C. The 69 weeks of years in prophetic years is the equivalent of 173,880 days. And he worked it all out, including the leap years, minus the leap centuries, and all the other chronological variables. And he shows that the 69th week ended on March 30, A.D. 33. Now, Nisan is the first month of the Jewish calendar. It occurs around March or April on our calendar. And again, anyone who wants a more detailed study, I would really encourage you, just pick up a copy of Dr. Honer's book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It really is worth reading. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and this segment is about you, your curiosity, your questions, the stuff that you're wondering about, like this one from Gene. In the Old Testament, the prophets prophesied about other countries. Were they in Israel and Judea when they spoke these words, or did they go to the other countries and actually prophesy from there? Yeah, and the answer is they actually did both. Uh, We know Ezekiel was living in Babylon when he prophesied against other countries in chapters 25 to 32. Uh, We know Jonah was physically sent to prophesy against Nineveh. And Amos, who was from the southern kingdom of Judah, was sent to prophesy against the northern kingdom of Israel. But other prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Obadiah, and Nahum, apparently prophesied against those other countries while remaining in the kingdom of Judah. Now, in those cases, the prophecy was directed against those nations, but the actual audience for the message was the nation of Judah itself. For example, Nahum prophesied the destruction of Nineveh, but the message was delivered to Judah and served as a message of hope to a nation that was experiencing harsh treatment under Assyria's rule. Well, this is an interesting question from Andre. He says, many years ago, I read that when Joseph was buried in Egypt, he was placed in one of Egypt's pyramids. The author said that the Pharaoh at that time had two pyramids built. Both were robbed later. But the strange thing about one of them was that the robbers didn't break anything on the way. It seemed that they had a plan, the map of the pyramid. And this guy was saying that the most likely explanation is this was the pyramid of Joseph and the sons of Israel had a plan of the pyramid and they carried the bones of Joseph to bury them in Canaan. In your opinion, does this idea hold water or is it just a myth, Charlie? Well, you know, I'll start this way. There are a number of pyramids in Egypt. In fact, they were built over a period of about a thousand years. You know, the three main pyramids we always think of when we think of Egypt were actually built hundreds of years before the time of Joseph. But there were still pyramids being built around the time of the patriarchs. However, the Bible never says Joseph was buried in a pyramid. It only says he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. So we don't know where he was buried, you know, if it was a tomb suitable for a royal official like he was, or if he was put in a family tomb. Uh, In fact, Joseph made his family swear an oath to carry his body from Egypt, and that suggests he expected them to take charge of his coffin so that they could move it when they left Egypt. I've never seen any evidence, though, suggesting that Joseph was buried in a pyramid that was later looted by his family as they came to take his sarcophagus away. Now, this does sound more like a good story or a myth, since there's no actual basis for it historically. 
to use the old idiom here, I'm from Missouri on this one when it comes to this theory. I would definitely require more proof before I could accept that as true. Here's a simple question for you, Charlie. Why will there be animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom? Yeah, a simple question with a more complex answer. In regard to animal sacrifices in the millennium, Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel talks about the new temple. And then in that chapter, he says there will be animal sacrifices. Now, I don't see it as a problem for several reasons. Uh, First, these sacrifices, and this is what we need to remember first, uh, they don't take the place of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. No animal sacrifice ever took away sin, even in the Old Testament, where we know they were commanded by God. Uh, Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Uh, God had the Old Testament sacrifices point forward to the work of his son. Uh, In the millennium, we know death's going to be far more infrequent. I remember people are going to live for a long time. In fact, if someone dies under 100, it'll be thought they were a curse to die so young. Animals won't be killing one another. So people born during that period won't even know what the concept of death is. Uh, Because it's so infrequent, it seems that God might have to have sacrifices to help point back to graphically illustrate what his son had to do to take away our sin. We know these sacrifices then will likely replace the Lord's table, which we celebrate today to remember Jesus' death. Now, second reason I say this all, in Acts 21, when Paul was arrested in the temple, he was there to join in the purification rites for some Jewish believers and pay for their expenses. Well, those purification rites are a reference to the completion of a Nazarite vow uh, mentioned in Numbers chapter 6, and the rites included animal sacrifice. So Paul evidently didn't have a problem participating in temple services, even when they included animal sacrifices in his day. Well, if Paul didn't see a conflict in that, I don't think we need to see one in the millennium either, as long as we realize it's not intended to replace Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, One last point. Hebrews 9.9 makes it clear the blood of bulls and goats weren't able to provide internal cleansing from the guilt of sin. But then they go on in verse 13. The writer says that those same sacrifices did provide outward cleansing from ceremonial impurity. When there was a temple, those who came to worship needed to be cleansed outwardly. And that was a valid purpose for animal sacrifices. When the millennial temple's built, it seems logical to assume outward cleansing will again be needed for those who come to worship. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio with Charlie Dyer and John Geiger. Interesting question here, Charlie. Will we all speak the same language in the millennial kingdom? Well, we're never told if we'll all speak the same language during the millennium. Certainly before the Tower of Babel, all the earth spoke a single language, you know, Genesis 11.1. And while it's possible God could again instantaneously restore a common language during the millennial kingdom, that's not necessarily required in the Bible, and it's not said to be so in the Bible. The one passage people sometimes use to suggest there'll be a common language is Zephaniah 3.9. There Zephaniah wrote, I'll purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. However, the, the purified lips don't refer to a new language, but to the spiritual purification of the words that will come from people's mouths. Instead of coarse, godless speech, people will again be calling on the name of the Lord. And in this case, lips are a figure of speech to refer to the entire person. There'll be a spiritual renewal that'll show up in how people speak and what they do as they serve him shoulder to shoulder. But there's no passage that actually says we'll speak one single language. From Exodus 8, verse 10, this question from Lorraine. Why did Pharaoh tell Moses to take the plague of frogs away tomorrow? If the plague was so terrible, why didn't he say to take it away immediately? I never try to miss your program, by the way, she says. Charlie, what about those frogs? 
Well, it's possible Pharaoh didn't say to remove the plague immediately because, at least up until then, his own magicians had been able to duplicate the miraculous signs performed by Moses. It wasn't until the next plague where these magicians were unable to produce their own copy of the miracle. So perhaps Pharaoh assumed that by delaying the taking away of the frogs, he was making it harder for Moses to claim it was done by the power of God. You know, frogs multiply, so he might have assumed there'd be more frogs the next day, not less. It's also possible he thought his magicians could remove the frogs that day, showing superiority over the God of Moses. Now, we're not told exactly why, so these two possibilities are just guesses, but I suspect it had something to do with the fact that he thought his magicians were just as powerful and therefore didn't take Moses' threat as seriously as he should. Hey, your question is welcome anytime with a quick email to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. You don't want to miss Charlie Dyer's devotional up next, a passage in the Bible, a place in the Holy Land riveted together. It's yours coming up next here on The Land and the Book. Stay with us. Thanks for sticking around here today on The Land and the Book. I think you'll be rewarded for your patience as just ahead, Charlie opens up his devotional time with Seven Stories with a Purpose, a brand new series. Charlie, where are you going to take us today? Today, we're heading out into the farmer's field with the sower. All right, well, we'll look forward to that, an agricultural kind of moment. But first, this look at My Holy Land Experience, a first-person account from somebody who's been there. Hi, my name is Steve Rutledge, and this is my Holy Land experience. Uh, My wife and I had the privilege of going back in 2007, and I've always heard that it'll change your life, change the way you look at the Bible, and that is absolutely true. Uh, It was a wonderful time of blessing to be in those places where the Lord spoke and worked. It's my type of place. Just to think that my Savior walked around there, I I loved Galilee. I would have hung out there the whole time. I really loved the, the Sea of Galilee and just that area. Uh, I love the land of Israel. I love the opportunity to visit there. And it was just a real blessing in my life and my wife's life uh, to be able to visit Israel. Hi, my name is Pat. I'm from Michigan. I just want to thank Charlie. This has just been an awesome experience, and I've just enjoyed every minute of it. Um, I think the sweetest memory that I'm going to take home is our boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. Um, That was just such a sweet time to have the boat turned off and and just be floating on the water and listen to the devotional that you had for us and to be singing songs together and look around at at the hills and the villages. Um, And now I can just close my eyes and picture all those places. And um, I'm anxious like everyone else to get home and and read my Bible and, and look up these places. Thank you. Charlie, a moment ago, we mentioned uh, you're beginning today a brand new series. You're calling Seven Stories with a Purpose. Yeah, that's right, John. You know, everyone likes stories. Good communicators know that if an audience starts fidgeting in their seats, Mm -hmm. the best way to pull them back is to tell a story. Yeah. And the true master of storytelling had to be Jesus. The Bible only records a small fraction of what Jesus said and did, and much of what it records focuses on the stories he told. Over the next five weeks, what I want to do is look at seven specific stories told by Jesus. All seven are found in Matthew 13, a chapter that signaled a fundamental change in Jesus's ministry. In the first part of Matthew's gospel, Jesus presented his claims to be Israel's Messiah. His message and his miracles were the resume he laid out to the nation. 
He fulfilled the Old Testament predictions, displayed his power over death and disease, and even demonstrated his mastery over the demonic forces of the age. Yet in chapter 12, the religious establishment officially rejected these claims. They couldn't deny the miracles he'd done, but they refused to accept the fact that God was the one behind those miracles. And it's at this point, after the leaders had officially rejected him, that Jesus began speaking in parables. The Greek word parabole actually means to place something alongside. The word refers to a story for the sake of comparison or illustration. Jesus began to share a series of stories, each of which had a particular purpose. The first of Jesus' stories in Matthew 13 is also the longest, and it comes right from the fields around the Sea of Galilee. As Jesus sat in a boat and taught the crowd, he might very well have pointed to a lone farmer off in the distance, walking through a freshly plowed field, carrying a pouch or bag of seeds slung over his shoulder. Behold, the sower went out to sow. Perhaps some in the crowd inadvertently turned to watch the man in the distance. But if they did, it would only be for an instant, because they were quickly drawn back to Jesus' words as he continued speaking. And as he sowed, some seeds fell by the road and the birds came and ate them up. The crowd nodded at this obvious truth. The dirt pathway running along the field was so packed down from constant use that it was almost as hard as the rocks poking through its surface, and a glance back showed a group of gray and black crows already swooping in behind the farmer to peck at the grains that had fallen on this pathway. Jesus continued, and they again were riveted on his story, and others fell upon the rocky places, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Every field in the land seemed to grow an abundant crop of rocks. As the farmer threw handfuls of seed out over the field, some landed on the rocks and got lodged in the many small crevices and holes. People knew from experience what would happen to that seed. The moisture hidden away in these holes would cause the seed to germinate, but the lack of soil guaranteed the tender plant would eventually wither and die. Jesus continued with his story, and others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Farmers fought a constant battle with thorns and thistles. These plants, with their purple flowers, look beautiful in the spring and early summer as they begin to sprout, but they can soon grow to the height of a man and their thorns are a painful reminder of God's curse on Adam. Farmers worked hard to keep the thorns at bay, but the plants still managed to take hold in those areas that were harder to reach, and their size guaranteed that any plant competing with them for sunlight and moisture would lose. But so far, Jesus has only been describing the seed that had fallen along the edges of the field. He ended his story by focusing on the well-plowed ground where the bulk of the farmer's seed landed. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Most of the grain sowed would germinate and grow into a mature head of wheat or barley. And in a normal year, each stalk would produce thirty to sixty kernels of grain, though even more was possible. Jesus finished telling his story, a story grounded in real life. But what was the point? What's the truth he was trying to teach? The disciples came to Jesus and asked that very question, and Jesus' answer was very direct. The seed being scattered was the word of the kingdom. It was the truth of the message Jesus had been preaching about himself and about the promised kingdom. 
But what did the four different types of soil represent? Jesus said the hard-packed pathway represented those who heard his message but didn't understand. They were the clueless listeners who never stopped to allow the truth to even penetrate their lives in any meaningful way. And as a result, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. They heard the message, but it never sunk in. This allowed Satan to snatch away the truth before it could make an impact. The rocky soil represented a person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This was the casual listener. The message seemed reasonable, but the person had no spiritual depth, so the truth never took root. And in the end, an easy life proved more important than a transformed life, which might require personal sacrifice. Jesus then revealed that the thorny ground represents a person who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. This was the self-centered listener. The message sounded good and made sense, but ultimately it got crowded out by all the pleasures offered in the present age. Jesus then explained the good soil. It represented the person who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit. This was the committed listener who heard, understood, and responded to the message Jesus had been sharing. Four soils, four ways to respond to the claims of Christ. And that brings us back to today. Jesus' message is still being proclaimed in the Word, and everyone still has four ways they can respond to his message. Some are clueless, while others are casual listeners, afraid to make a commitment. And still others are self-centered, so wrapped up in all that life appears to offer that they're unwilling to let go of anything to follow Jesus. And then there's the good soil, those who hear, understand, accept, and follow. And the question at the end of this day is this, which soil best describes your heart today? The answer holds eternal consequences. Clueless, casual, self-centered, or good soil. Boy, I was taking notes there. Rather sobering, isn't it? Our thanks to Charlie Dyer for sharing that devotional, which is available to hear again when you head to our website, thelandandthebook.org. Have you checked out our Facebook page lately? Always fresh stories there, something to think about. Best way to access our Facebook page is by heading first to thelandandthebook.org and then clicking on the Facebook icon. We do appreciate it when you let the station management know that uh, you listen and that you appreciate the program. Why not drop them an email, send them a card? Thanks for doing that. And thanks for keeping those Bible questions coming. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's it for today's broadcast. I'm John Geiger thanking you for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.